right, guys. Welcome again to the Salt City Church Podcast. I'm live from Ronda the Honda, my 2004 Honda Odyssey minivan. And I found out this week when I got the Carfax report that Ronda is worth a meager $500, which actually got me kind of excited because after all, a, a vehicle is really just about transportation, getting from one place to the other. And my insurance is low. And I feel like uh, I feel really good about that. And the other thing I feel really good about is the guest that I have on the podcast this afternoon. So I'm joined by my dad, Gregory Wayne Stevenson. And I'm joined by uh, an older brother and mentor in the faith, Mark Aaron, and his dad, Jack Aaron. And we're going to be talking about a number of different topics, but we just want to encourage you guys uh, in life and faith. So thanks for joining me, guys. Good to be here. Be true. Yes. That's thanks a, for okay. inviting us. That's yeah, great cheap, to have you. I, I feel like Rhonda the Honda is cheap office space, right? It's <laughs> so cheap. Just travel around and just office wherever you park, man. I love it. You know, the mistake I made last week, though, it was the first hot day in Minnesota. And I accidentally left my window open. And so or I, I left my window closed. I didn't open it. And so Rosaria Butterfield was on the podcast and she's singing this, this psalm to encourage us all. And I was glad I didn't have a high def camera because I was just sweating bullets. And, and you noticed, Drew, have you noticed Rhonda, like your car, the older it gets, it takes on a personality. Like there's certain oh. things like you can't roll down your window. You have to move things a certain way or turn the ignition key just to get it started. So, yeah. 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 So it, it all did start. I mean, the, the name Rhonda the Honda, I feel like whenever I say that, I, I think back to my childhood and think about how we had old cars that we gave names to. Dad, what was your favorite car that we had in terms of uh, just overall, you know, the name and, and just that gives you fond memories? Well, probably our uh, nine-passenger um, blue Impala station wagon where we bought when it had 70,000 miles on it because it was a retired area school bus used by an area education agency, and it had all vinyl seats in it. And we got it right after one of you kids threw up on the velour interior of the car we had and decided it was inappropriate for having three kids in uh, car seats in it. And bluey, by the time... We were done with it. It had gone through the the hundred and fifty thousand mile additional mile. Well, not that many. It was up to about one hundred and eighty thousand miles when Mom quit driving it, and I got it as a second vehicle. And then I made the mistake of calling a deer after I shot it in the back, and the tarp I had leaked, so it smelled really bad for a long time too. And it got to where it was hard to steer. You had to kind of jack the wheel and hope it didn't slide all the way across the road, and then you jack it the other way. And it was just special. I, I remember I remember about Bluey. You know, you, you mentioned we threw up in the other car and you said the vinyl seats. And I remember throwing up in Bluey on the vinyl seats. And the protocol was just to get the hose out and just open up both doors and just hose right across the back. That's absolutely true. That, that happened one day because, Drew, you were always really sensitive to smells and your older sister, Helen, it turned out had the flu, and you were both in car seats, and Anna was in a car seat between you, facing backwards, and Ellen told us that she, her stomach hurt, but we thought she was just nervous because she'd gotten in trouble. We were going to Sunday night church, and she'd gotten in trouble the week before. We just thought she didn't want to go, and all of a sudden, we hear this, blah, and literally felt it hit the back of the vinyl seat that Sarah was in on her side, <laughs> and we looked over and just went, oh, man, and then we heard Drew. I looked in the rearview mirror, and he'd go, and it hits the back of my seat and it, you know so we had piles down in the carpet on both sides and we just gave up and went to a friend's house and asked if we could use their hose and I took everything out of the back seat and just sprayed the carpet I scooped it out and then sprayed the car out and we just went home it was just a disaster the thing I'm taking out of that story is Drew you also had to go to Sunday night church growing up 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dude, wasn't that the worst thing ever? Oh, yeah. I mean, totally. if you know, it's the next best thing to having like revival in the church is like not having to do Sunday night church. <laughs> you did that too? Dude, how oh, many yeah. great playoff games did we have to miss? I know, I know. And this was this was the heyday, like the last church we went to in su- Sunday nights. We stopped going to an eighth grade when I was in eighth grade, which was, you know, the, the 98 NBA finals. So literally I was in Sunday night church during Michael Jordan's prime. <laughs> that is, what were you, your generation, what were you guys doing? I don't know. Did so you just the, another example of poor parenting and how we abused you as children. That's oh man, we had to go, Drew, did you have, Ours was like Sunday school at nine, big church at 1030 or 1045. You're home by one. You had people over because you had to host people. And then at like four o'clock, you had to start getting ready to go to five. O'clock. Oh, and yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we went to a charismatic church for a short time where there was a meal after the church service. And of course, my parents were always serving. So we had to, we would go to church and like make the mashed potatoes and then stay for the meal, and then come home, you get to watch like two quarters of the game on NBA on NBC, and then you're back at church on Sunday night. (laughs) But the most pathetic thing for us, Drew, is like, this is like the worst thing that we have to complain about. about (laughs) Okay, so Jack, on the car question for you, you were saying that you, the errands took it to the next level where you didn't necessarily name your cars because they weren't even deserving of names. Can you describe one of these vehicles that you toted the errant clan around? Well, actually, actually, a, a story did come to mind that Mark will remember well. We, we, took, a, we took a trip to Yellowstone uh, when Mark, I don't know how old you were, Mark, but we had a 1980 Honda Civic station wagon. It was silver with a little red interior. And uh, I drove that thing till it had like 280,000 miles on it. It's probably still driving around somewhere if it hasn't rusted into a little pile of dust. But, uh, <laughs> but, we, but, we, uh, but we, we would travel in the thing, just like a little, they were real little, little Civic station wagon. So we, had, we, we were gonna camp, so we took all of our camping equipment and we had we put it on top, and we had pot pans and oh yeah, there's a picture of it. We had, we, had, we had pans and tents and and air mattresses, everything just hanging on that thing. We looked like the Beverly Hillbillies, and we were picking up my son who was at who was at a junior high school. We were picking him up. Uh, I think it was uh, we were leaving in the afternoon, so we pulled up. <laughs> During lunch hour, when all the kids were in lunch and they're all looking at the window, we pull up and we didn't have tie downs back then. It was rope, you know, this old like tent rope or something that he found. And Stephen comes running out like, get out of here, get out of here. Like it was a bank robbery or something. (laughs) (laughs) He says, let's get out of here. And we took off and went, uh, and it was that was back before child restraints or anything, so we had the seats down in the back, and so we we'd lay down there and we'd wrestle around. We had so much fun. Wasn't and, that fun, and, Mark? And yeah, and and we were we were like facing backwards, you know, laying down, and we're like, hey, somebody's got somebody's losing their load, and there's like coolers flying off and debris, and we're like, man, those poor people, and it was us. <laughs> so, so that was that's my uh, most vivid car story that our kids will never forget. But it was also probably one of the best trips we ever took. Yeah, you know, it's so it, memorable. It's true. So in the the, the proverb, "Better a dry crust and peace than a house of feasting and strife." One of the things, Drew, that I would say for anyone listening, the one of the lessons I did learn from my dad is uh, he never had a car payment. And so um, we just, that was kind of one thing that I don't think any of us kids ever had a car payment until- Until you're suburban. 
I was the first one, and I still remember it. Dad was just so ashamed. <laughs> How could you do this? Oh, totally. No, that was totally our mentality, too. Just And something I'm so thankful for as I get older is just the the biblical principle that you don't spend money that you don't have. It seems like such a, a simple thing. But as I talk to other people, just how how central that can be in in the life of a family when when that's not built in and and oh, yeah i'm debt. super thankful for that yeah yeah card debt is just the worst there there's yeah so i'm thankful for Here, your i was pretty uptight about this whole thing thinking you guys are going to ask us hard questions and we're just going along <laughs> talking about stuff that's really easy to talk about this is cool <laughs> Well, when you're, in a five, when you're in a $500 Honda van, you know, it makes it, we can all identify with that as dads that, you know, just had to cripple along with whatever we could find. I can really identify with that, man. As, as I think about, um, about this time, you know, one of the challenges as a dad with young kids is um, to set a godly example for them and to lead them uh well in in a hard situation and as you guys think back to just the chaos of of young kids and busy schedules and church activities and and life what advice would you give to young dads I guess for me, I what it brings to mind, and I tend to always, I probably learned the most from the things I did the most wrong, um, assuming I figured out how to do them right at some point in time. And, uh, you know, I just look back, I was meeting with a group of men, which was kind of my practice, you know, once a week, kind of this iron sharpening iron. And I can still remember as we were just talking one morning, and I don't even think the discussion had much to do with, with our parenting, but it, I had this kind of epiphany, and I just realized that up until that point in time, I'd been trying to do a better job of parenting than I thought my parents had, of course, um, probably failing miserably, but, but what I didn't realize was that I was parenting like my parents had parented in so many ways um, and not really questioned it. And what I mean by that is I, I had this roadmap, you know, that I think was fairly biblical, but that I was trying to impress on you three kids, um, you know, just life lessons and, and, um, and learning responsibility and doing jobs and all the things you do as parents. And, but what I didn't realize is I kind of had a you know, if you will, kind of a uniform vanilla vision of what kind of Christian you would become rather than rather than having gotten before the Lord and asked the Lord to show me for you, Drew, um, because we were so different um, in terms of personality, um, what it was that the Lord made you to be and what it was that the Lord wanted you to grow up to be specifically. Uh, what were your gifts and your talents and how were they different than your sisters and how did that mean that that I needed to parent you and you know for me it was an epiphany and it caused a, a, a time of really significant repentance because I had to get on my knees and go Lord you know I've just been just kind of drumming the same things into each of our children and not that they're bad but I hadn't really stopped to ask what you made him to be you know and it changed everything I started looking at you differently and praying for you differently and thinking about how to parent you differently. Um, and I think it made a difference in our relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How about you, Jack? Well, as I, as I reflect back on, uh, on, on my, I, I also have three kids. I have a, a daughter and then uh, uh, one in a son in between Mark and her. And they're all very different in personality. Uh, and to appreciate and to guide them in the way they should go. But uh, 
I think one of the things that had a big impact on our family, and I can tell already by your story of serving lunch at church, that there was a sense that there was a, a passion that we had to find ways to to be, to love the church and to serve the Lord, you know, find some ways to serve him, however, how, how we're wired. And, and one of the things God put in my heart was to be involved in, in the evangelism ministry, you know, so I'd come home and, and sometimes they'd have stories of people that came to Christ. And, and I think that, I think that, uh, that even though, you know, I wasn't, I'm sure I failed in a lot of ways. I think my, my, my um, desire to somehow serve God and, and love the church, I think that that is contagious to children. You know, when, when they see the real passion, it's not just phony, like, oh, we go to church on Sundays, but a real love for people. And, and um, like we would, we would have people in our home and share the gospel with them. And, and the kids saw that. And I think, and they saw the, the relationships that we had. And so it was a real thing. It wasn't, it wasn't artificial. There was a real love there for the, for for God and His people. And I, I think if we expect our kids to to capture it, it has to be real with us. You know, a real love for the Word of God. Actually, uh, my wife is the best influence in our family. I think, and I'm sure I don't know if that's true in yours too. But oh, absolutely. Different, different influences. That's why I'd say it. Yeah. Um, Dad, I, I think one of the things um, that you instilled in me really early on was a love for God's word. And I, kn I know that that didn't necessarily mark the home that you grew up in. But what what were the influences on you that led you to treasure God's word. I, I remember you would you would hold on to Bibles so long, for example, that they would be duct taped. You would duct tape the covers, and and I just remember at different times as a as a kid, just opening up your Bible and reading your notes, and and just um, seeing the highlighter and the the underlines, and it and you actually read like First and Second Chronicles, you know, and like you read the whole, you whole Bible. And, and I, I think something that I really appreciate too, is that I remember at family dinners, it wasn't like the Bible was one voice in the conversation that it's like, Oh, Drew, you have your opinion. And I have my opinion and the Bible has its opinion. And I kind of disagree with this part of the Bible. And so I'm going to go with my opinion on this, but it was like, um, just the air we breathed was Bible saturated. Where did the love of the Bible for you come from? Yeah, that's a hard one. I, you know, I think probably the, the simple and the, the best answer is that by God's grace. Um, you know, I grew up on a farm um, in Iowa as the only son, I had an older and younger sister. And at that time, it was fairly patriarchal. So my sisters helped in the house and I always was outside with my dad. And, and so I really was raised more like an only child with my dad and the amount of time I spent with him. And my dad <clears throat> really didn't read the Bible and he never talked about it. You know, he was a moral person, but um, I can remember as a kid, I, I was always very introverted and, and Anybody who knew me as a child would say that I was really socially inept and not very nice. And that was kind of the, the message I always got as a child. And, and I can remember from a very young age, out on the farm, it was so dark at night, laying on my back in the grass and just looking at the stars and the Milky Way, would, I would just sit there and contemplate. It, it was evident to me by the time I was six or seven that that we couldn't be all there is, you know, that, that the universe demanded that, that, that there had to be God was real. And, and I, it, it was evident to me at a very young age that if that was true, then, and if God made everything, then 
that God was somebody that had to be reckoned with and that I had to serve. For a long time, the church we went to, I, I didn't hear the real gospel. You know, it was a gospel of legalism and of works that I heard, but I understood that if I was going to find out about God, it was in the Bible. And as a kid, I started reading the Bible. I got it wrong. I mean, I read the Bible and I saw a bunch of moral laws and it weighed me down. It truly, in my life, really became the fact that, you know, what it, what it says in uh, Romans at the end of chapter three, that no one's saved by the law, but by the law we're made aware of our need for the Lord, you know, and that was really true in my life. But um, I did find the Lord and, and really, um, you know, probably because I'm an introvert, but my greatest influences always, have always been um, books, and the Bible has been the greatest influence in my life. You know, it's, uh, Greg, can it's I clear I, at some point in reading the Bible, it changed from finding information about God to being an interactive um, and an enjoyable time with the Lord, where as I read the Bible, I'm talking to him, I'm listening to him, I'm being convicted by him, I'm, I'm entering into moments of praise, and it's a dialogue with me when I'm in the Word, and I love being there. Greg, can I, can I just ask you a question? I, I want to, um, call, you know, I, I called you a couple weeks ago, I was preaching, and I really, um, I called you to get some thoughts on Luke 12, because it was a meaningful time. You, uh, you had a stroke at the time I got called in, you know, to visit at the hospital and you kind of rushed to Iowa city and, and you shared a verse with me that ministered to me as you were laying there. It was Luke 12, 32, uh, you know, fear not little flock for your father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Uh, it's his good pleasure. And, and I was talking to you and I, I remember I was like, Greg, can you just share some thoughts on that? And I started taking notes on my post-it. And I've got all these post-it notes still, and I, I just one after the other. And all of a sudden, I feel like like you're talking about being a kid, looking at the universe and marveling. Now, in that conversation, we talked for over an hour, and you basically wrote my sermon for me. But, but I, <laughs> it was Greg talking to you was one of the more worshipful experiences for me because it's like sixty years. You know, I think, are you 65? I am, yeah. Yeah, so however old you were as that kid and 60 years of, of meditating. And I wanted to ask you to just riff. Can I ask your dad a question just to unpack something? You said, if I wrote a book, it would be this. And it was about something about how Francis Schaeffer, true spirituality, but talking about opening our eyes to see the spiritual realm. And you talked about, you know, as a scientist, you study the material universe, but you said there's this whole problem of like the philosophy of the mind and this idea that like, are we just a product of these neurological impulses and the, you know, electro, you know, chemical reactions in our brain. And you said science doesn't even know what imagination is or an idea or like you started saying things that were just like blowing my mind i wonder if you could maybe well we talked for an hour but okay so so if i go back to a kid the church that we were in after after offering was taken every week um we sang the doxology and the form of the doxology that we sang in the depth of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And the church I was in, I mean, nobody talked about the Holy Ghost, let alone the Holy Spirit. The only thing I knew was Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I had an idea who the Father was and the Son was. And I read in the Bible somewhat about the Holy Spirit that I had. And, and I'd have to say still to this day, you know, we went to a charismatic church for a time. And they talked about the Holy Spirit a lot and danced up and down the aisles. One of the reasons we went is because I wanted to understand more about the Spirit that dwelt in us. And even as a kid, thinking about that and going, who is this Holy Spirit? And if that's really um, what Jesus told Nicodemus, that's the, the key. That's actually what begins and is the essence of spiritual life. 
Um, and Jesus said in John 14, you know, he said, I'm not leaving you as orphans, I'll come to you, you know, and for a little while, the, the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I'm with you. And then he says, and I will be in you. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says, you will see me because you know, he's telling the disciples in the upper room, I am with you, but I will be in you. I will be in you. Um, and, you know, and, and so many verses in the Bible, I mean, Paul in Romans 8 talks about the essence of, of spiritual life being those who live by the spirit those are the ones who are true believers and if you don't live by the spirit you're not a true believer and yet in churches we just seem to have so little that helps us understand what it is to the, the, the spiritual realm that god lives in as spirit the heavenly realm is real it's made of substance it's a substantial thing god is real and He's not made of atoms. He's not made of the material that this world we're in. And the, the culture that we now live in in the Western world is predominated with, with materialism as the primary worldview that says that the only thing that is real is that which can be measured in a laboratory that's made of material things, of atomic particles, subatomic particles. Now we've even found the, the God particle, the Higgs boson and the Higgs field. And, and our understanding of matter is complete. Uh, we, we understand it all, and that's reality. Whereas the Bible is so different because the Bible not only says, no, that's not right. The material world is not all of reality. In fact, it would say that the spiritual world is a greater reality because it's eternal. And this material world ends. And it will be replaced with a new world that is fundamentally a spiritual world. And we will fundamentally have spirit bodies, as is described in 1 Corinthians chapter, what is it, 15. You know, I believe that the Greek words are pneuma, python, wind, body, or spirit body, um, that we'll have in the, when we're glorified. Um, and I've just always been intrigued in this life, what it means, I think it's at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that John Piper famous verse where it says, you know, um, what, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord. And as we behold him, we're being changed from one form of glory into another form of glory. All this is from the spirit. All this is from the spirit. You know, that, that the whole essence of, of, spiritual life and the inheritance we've been given is to increasingly be able to have the, our eyes open to see God's face, the inheritance that we received in the spiritual realm and to look forward to it, but also to live in it now as we live in the material world that we become increasingly spiritual beings. And I'm just intrigued with that. I, I want to see God's face more fully than I do now. Um, I want to be able to rest in the peace of God more fully than I do now. That was the essence of my time. Is that pretty much how you said it in your sermon, Mark? No. <laughs> was... Greg, you, you've got a microscope or something in the picture here. I think you're in your office. You mentioned something that was so interesting to me. Like, you can't put an idea under that microscope. Like, like the problem of the philosophy of the mind is that we don't even really know what imagination is like science can't explain that you were talking about how somebody can put words onto a, symbols onto a page and like all of a sudden transport another mind into this imaginary world with mountains and rivers and trees and like science doesn't know what that is or why or how if it's all random yeah. They've actually had to modify their idea of materialism. They call it physicalism now because they've had to admit that there are secondary causes. For example, the product of the mind is not made up of molecules. You know, who you are, Mark, I mean, who you are and what makes you different than somebody else, all of the mind, all of the things that you think make up you is a personality. That's not molecules. Now, the material world would say that it's electrochemical reactions 
from neurotransmitters, electrical chargers running over the cells in the brain. The Bible would say, well, yes, there is a mind, but there's a spirit and a soul. That there is a part of man that's eternal. That when this body dies and it goes to dust, none of those things the material world talks about will be there. So in their worldview, it's all over. But in the biblical worldview, it isn't at all. And what I was saying to you, you know, you sit there and I was reading, I've been reading a bunch of books in this, just thinking about it for myself. And, and one of the points that they made was that, was that you can generate an idea, which the material, the materialist would say is, is a secondary cause from your chemical reactions in your brain, but it's kind of crazy. So I can have chemical reactions that, that make me, me, and I can come up with something that's imaginary, that isn't real. I can create an idea in my mind and I can create an imaginary place. Um, you know, think about the writer that wrote uh, the, the trilogy of, well, any, any fiction, right? So you create that. And if I write it down, okay, it's not real anyway, but it's it's something that's kind of real because I made it up in my mind enough to describe it in a book. And then you read the book. And when you read the book, you read my words. And what do you do? You create that in your mind. But it's not what was in my mind because what was in my mind wasn't real in the first place. And what you create is kind of something like what I created, but they're they're really not the same at all. And none of those things have anything to do with atoms, we're now to second and third and fourth causes. And I would just argue that if anybody thinks very deeply about the current culture and the material world, it's just silly. It's just silly. It doesn't explain what really happens. You know, it, it strengthens the argument for a spiritual world and for other substances, for a reality that's even more real. Wow, this, hey, this, Dad, remember Dallas Willard, the, the thought on, Dallas Willard was a philosophy professor at USC, and he talks a lot about consciousness, and what was his thing, Dad, when he died? I... Well, he, uh, he said that, he, he thought that when he died, he wouldn't realize that he died, that he, because the continuum of life, it, he will just uh, be like walking from one room to another, you know. Uh, I don't think he used that, but, but the idea is, and when he was dying, somebody was with him. I don't remember who it was, was by his side and they could hear him saying, well, thank you. You know, like he was speaking to somebody that, that he was saying on the other side. And, and, uh, I think that that, that for a Christian, for, for us who really believe, you know, and John saw those visions in revelation, they were real, you know? He saw this heavenly city. He saw all this stuff. It's more real and more lasting than anything we can experience here. Do you, guys, do you guys see this like in people's response to the coronavirus? Like if, if all there is is the material universe and science is God, then survival is all we have. Mm -hmm. Like that's a... I, I don't know. I just see that coming out in our culture, like that worldview of materialism of the freak out over what do we do? Whereas Christians, we kind of like, obviously we, we value life, but it's not survival is not all we have. Jack, Jack, I'd love to, to know on that, you know, thinking about coronavirus and the moment we, we live in, what are you sensing in your own soul that God is doing in you? And, and even more than that, just what God is doing in the church? Well, I think it's, uh, I think it's reducing, I think it's reducing down, reducing things down to what really is, what really is it to be a disciple, to be a Christian and what does that look like when you're, when you're alone and when you have a lot of time? Uh, and for me, it, it helps sort out some of the things that aren't really important. You know, the, uh, uh, it kind of cuts some of the fluff out uh, because you're not just busy running around buying things and doing things. 
it's like, well, what really is, what is it really the basic, the basic needs that I have? And, and for me, it's, uh, uh, and, and I know that, that we talked about a little bit of you, a uh, Greg loves the word and, and it's, it's hearing the voice of God, I believe. And, and I, as I reflect on what your dad said, I, I've had a lot of similar experience and, and the, the probably one of the most meaningful things for me in the last 20 years is when I was taught, I was taught to, to journal, to do soap journaling. And the guy that was telling us about it said, uh, he was teaching us how to do it. He said, when you read the word, you should expect to hear from God. You should expect the spirit of God to speak those words into your soul in a, in a, in a light, it's kind of like an illuminating way. And it's, and it's like something in, inside me woke up. It's like, ooh, I don't know. When I go to the Word, I don't expect to hear God speak to me. And it's like something was ignited in me. Now, when I read the Word, I expect the Spirit of God to speak to me, you know, and to impress those words and, and make an application to my heart. Or, or, and, and to me, that's revolutionary. And, you know, Jesus said it a number of times. He said, he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. So he'll remind you. He'll remind you of what I've said. And so we, I think that's probably one of the biggest turning points in my Christian life is when that, that kind of that awareness awakened in me you, that the word of God is living and, and it's alive. And he really wants to illuminate my mind and heart and speak to me directly from the word. And I think Jack, when, uh, Jack when was that? When was that 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 happened? Well, actually, I've experienced, I experienced it many times in my Christian life when the word of God came alive. You know, like, I'll never forget one time I was riding in a car with my friend. It's a fellow that I had discipled, and he was a good navigator, so he was memorizing scriptures. And he had this verse on a, on a card on his dash. And he says, and, and uh, I was helping review, and he, he read this verse to me, and it was like the Lord said, that verse is, is your life verse. And I thought, what? And it's a verse from 2 Corinthians, and here's, here's what it says. And it goes a lot with what we've been talking about. For we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And it's like, boy, I read that. I thought, wow, that, that, just, that just says it, you know, in such an awesome way. And so there are different times in my life when that happened. But I think about, it was about 20 years ago, um, maybe, yeah, about 20 years ago, when, when uh, I, I, the Spirit said, you should have a, a constant expectation that the Word of God, when you read it, is going to come alive to you. And, and that is the Holy Spirit directly speaking. That's God's voice to you. And, uh, and that was probably maybe not quite 20 years ago, but, uh, but it was an impression that, no, this, is, this isn't just once in a while, but you can expect God to speak to you on a regular basis, you know, to listen to his voice. I think my dad is describing that moment as, as an epiphany that, um, but dad, I think you've been having those epiphanies. <laughs> I think you've had a thousand of those moments. And one of the phrases I use a lot is, uh, from one of my friends, uncle said this, but master the restart. I think one of the things that you've really modeled is mastering the restart. There's a lot of things you talk about, like, oh, you know, starting things like in the Christian life, you start a lot of things and then you feel guilty because you quit the Bible reading plan like a few weeks in. And I mean, how many Bible hey, wait, wait, wait. plans have you mean- started? Mark, I, we got a, We laughed so hard. Mark and I were like on a road trip together and we were laughing because he was describing, Jack, like you coming back from the Promise Keepers Conference and it's like the family did family devotions for like two weeks. And I'm like, you could totally be describing my dad too right now. Oh, like you that, guys, no, you guys are not, you, do. you guys are not yeah. like spiritual superheroes in that way. It's like, you guys, you, like dad goes to a men's event. It's like, okay, we're doing family devotions, but we're kind of as kids. And, and my mom's like, well, at least this is only lasting a couple weeks. <laughs> we Dude, then Greg, you and- lasted a lot longer than my dad because he'd be driving home 
listening to James Dobson and get convicted. He wasn't leading us over devotions over dinner. So he'd be like, guys, we're having devotions. And we're like, yeah, we are. <laughs> what's the, but what's the secret to um, mediocre <laughs> Christian parenting? What's the, what's the secret to, you know, what's the handbook for you guys for sinners? right? I mean, we can read these biographies of, of these, you know, so-called great saints who, you know, spent four hours a day in the word and, and we can feel like it's so unattainable, but I feel like what's been so helpful for me is that street level wisdom. Like, how do you, how do you stay walking with, with Jesus for a lifetime as an ordinary person? you got to tell the story about Hudson Taylor. You're like, as I got older, I knew why he got up and prayed for four hours in the morning. Yes. Yes. I would read these biographies of praying Hyde or Hudson Taylor or CT stud. You know? I read Hudson Taylor years ago. Yeah. Isn't that a devastating book? <laughs> <laughs> and you read about how all these guys, Oh, they wake up at five in the morning yeah. and they pray. And now that I'm an old man, I wake up at five in the morning because I have to go to the bathroom you know and, and so and i can't go back to sleep so why not pray you know i thought they were not they were not great spiritual guys they were just old men it was <laughs> it was it was prostate health <laughs> so the key is having prostate problems to develop the prayer life i i think the key is just realizing that that uh well that one guy said something that i love I, I think his name is, uh, well, Stuart Briscoe. He was at our church years ago. And he made a statement that I'll never forget. He said, he'll ask people, he asked people that, you know, he had a big church and he asked people, could you help with this? And they'd say, no, I could never do that. And he's, he'd look at him and say, well, could you do it poorly? And they said, well, yeah, I guess I could. <laughs> and, and I think sometimes we just need to persevere. Could you do it poorly? Yeah, could you could you read the Bible and maybe, uh, you know, feel like you're inadequate? Yeah. Well, start doing it poorly and see if if God might work in your life. You know. Uh, so. Statement. Yeah. Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. And Dad, you've done a great job at that. <laughs> I've set the bar pretty low for everyone. It. Yeah, Drew, one of the things my dad always says is the errants are on the cutting edge of mediocrity, right? We are, yeah. we are almost good. It's dad, one of the things I think of that, that I'm often telling people is my parents have been in so many awkward small groups. <laughs> like the number of just strange characters Greg, that you have guys you... have interacted with and in commerce but but can you talk about that that just persevering in community with with people that aren't impressive what has that looked like how is that how has that come about in your life i think too often people look at small groups and they think that the purpose of a small group is for them to go someplace and, and uh, feel good you know, for, for me to go there and have my needs be met, you know, it's everybody else's job to make me feel good about being a Christian and everybody there should be my friend and the relationship should be easy. And, you know, we should hold hands and sing Kumbaya and drink hot chocolate all the time. And and that's certainly not been our experience, you know. And I think <laughs> other people, other people that, that have been in a small group with us would probably say, man, that's sure not been our experience with this group. <laughs> But, you know, because I think small groups really are places where we as people who are just completely broken and messed up, we come together and we try and figure out how to take this stuff the Bible says and put it into practice. And then we do it incredibly badly, you know, and, and so it becomes a place where we learn in community you know, how to forgive each other because we give so many, we give each other so many opportunities. And, you know, we, and I really think that the truth of the matter is, is that we get a, a phenomenally idealized idea of what 
the Christian family is, and we give that idealized idea to a world who then calls us hypocrites. But the reality is, we're just broken people that the Lord has entered into and is is trying to make something better out of us than we were before through the volition of his spirit that's within us. And when we go to small groups, you know, I think the reason our small groups often turned out that way is because we really wanted to make it be a place where we were learning how to love people. And I think one of the things about loving people is, is you just hang in there. And we would end up accumulating people that had left other small groups because they didn't feel loved. And, and some of the reasons they didn't feel loved is because they were kind of hard to love, you know? And, you know, I, I told Sarah, and I, I hope that people aren't watching this that have been in our small group and thinking, <laughs> thinking about them, <laughs> because they're probably thinking about me. But, you know, we, we, we had somebody look at us one time and describe it, and they said, well, it just seems like your small group is like a group of misfit toys. And, you know, I kind of looked at it and said, well, thank you. You know, because the reality is, you know, I guess then maybe we're learning how to love. You know, and we're learning how to, because every time I'm tempted to just throw in the towel and get tired of it and want to go someplace where it's easier and where people are easier to get along with, I think about how incredible, patient, and merciful, and generous the Lord has been to me, because I'm just such a, a screw-up all my life. We all are. We had so many people live with us over the years, Drew, in our house. Our house was the one, and I think what I'm saying is my, you know, dad, you and mom really modeled love and what Greg's saying, because like those people actually moved into our house. <laughs> and, you know, that example of, I remember, you know, you guys hosting college ministry and still remember this guy quentin that was the awkward had the long hair and the man bun and brought the cheesecake and and i pulled this big old black hair out of the cheesecake and i'm like i wonder who brought this you know and he was the guy who always had to get on his knees when we prayed you know like dude come on really and but you now guys, you're that guy mark oh my word it's terrible i but but how how do you i think one of the things you said dad that's true is like you've said before, don't be afraid to be the one that loves the most. Mm. What do you mean by that? And how do you like, yeah, hospitality, that, what Greg's talking about, hosting misfits into the house and. Well, I think, uh, I think that, that when, when, uh, when God, when God does the work in your heart and he, and he puts a, uh, puts his, his love there. Uh, just think of how Jesus loved us. He loved us way more than we could ever give back. So for us to do that is a model of what he's done for us and to love people, you know, to have people in your home that, that, you know, they can never have you back over. Uh, but to use what you have to love people, uh, without strings attached to it, just to love and and uh, and and we we do it. We all do it in different ways. Uh, my wife does it by serving people. I do it by words of encouragement. You know, and we all have different ways of of doing it. But but find ways to express Christ's love. Uh, it's and uh, and not not necessarily expect to get anything back. Usually, it comes back though comes back in other ways. Can I jump back to a question that was asked earlier, Drew, when you were asking about, or one of you did, I can't remember, about parenting. Um, you know, when talking about both of us being such horrible examples of, of, of being consistent with having, with having uh, devotions and that sort of thing, which I did, I was awful, um, because, I'm awful in my own life, you know, consistency is really not my forte. Um, but I would just have to say probably that the two things would be um, 
that you're genuine, that you're truly genuine with your kids, that you're that you're telling the truth. You know, and when you screw up, I, I was always amazed. I mean, when you guys were really little and, and I lost my temper and I disciplined you in anger and and it was just a bad scene, you know, and I get on the, my knees on the floor and tell you I was wrong and apologize, you know, and it was just, it just amazed how resilient you kids were and these little pudgy hands coming around my back and patting me on the back. See, I'm going to cry, but telling me, you know, it's okay, Dad. You know, but I think that, that there's as much learned in parenting by by our transparency and modeling what it means to repent um, and what it means to forgive um, to your kids so that it just becomes an organic part of what life is rather than trying to be perfect parents because your kids, who knows your kids know you're not. You know, they're not deceived. It's just they just think that you're too proud and arrogant to admit you're wrong. And I just say, man, just be, just be honest. And be honest before the Lord and be honest with your kids about the Lord and, and try and, 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 and know this, which is probably the most sobering thing of all, that, you know, it really, even if I'd had devotions every single day at the table and then not live that life out for you to be able to see, it wouldn't have been any good anyway, because it really is true that it's more about what's caught than what's taught with kids. They learn what they see. They learn because what they see is authentic to them. It's it's something that's real. Sitting around the table with books open for a kid isn't that real. So I think the real issue is living an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ yourself and living it in an authentic way before your kids. And you can screw up a lot because you will. But the Lord's faithful in that. He's just faithful. Yeah, it was that, that reminds me of Mark and I were at a conference together and the, the whole conference was on spiritual formation. And Tim Keller got asked the question, what's the best thing he ever did as a dad? And, you know, the whole thing is about, you know, doing disciplines and whatever. And Tim Keller's like, I actually know the answer to the question. I asked my sons and they both said the same things in separate conversations. They both said the best thing you ever did as a dad is when you stopped doing family devotions. I still remember when you told me that it was really encouraging. <laughs> no, totally. And, and and I'm not I'm not saying obviously, you know, that's how some people operate. And and um, but but I think that that genuineness and and even now, Dad, like you model that for me in, in our in our phone conversations and there's a continual humility and attitude of repentance and has given me permission to have those exact same conversations with my kids. And what a great opportunity in quarantine. I mean, when you're quarantined with your family, you are going to have things to apologize for. It's hard to fake it a hundred percent of the time, isn't it? <laughs> totally. But what a, beautiful thing to have a family that uh you don't have to fake it with and so that's awesome i think we oh there you are jack i thought we lost you man um but yeah we are we're we're running towards the end here so normally i ask my one guest three questions so i'm each i'm gonna ask each of my uh three guests this time one question and so um mark the, the first one's going to you if you could pause the quarantine for four hours and go to any sporting event, concert, or restaurant, where would you go and who would you go with? So, Drew, let me set it up. <laughs> the last dance, all right? All right, so I'm grieving the loss of the NBA playoffs. And I would take you and you and me and and I think probably Ryan Hamby and Drake Epkiss would be with us and we would go to an NBA finals. But the finals, the teams in the finals would be like the 1992 dream team versus the 2020 dream team. And so my yeah. only question is who would the starting five be on both squads? 
and we would sit there and we would watch it and it would be the most epic thing ever. And I think, uh, I think the nineties guys win. You know what? I can't argue with that. I can't argue with the nineties guys winning. Cause you'd have to go what Jordan magic bird, David Robinson and Carl Malone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the ch- the question is, can you hand check? How are the refs going to ref the game? You know what I mean? Totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Those dudes, is- dude, those dudes would lock down like Steph Curry in the old hand check days. Totally. You guys totally. are just proving the point I made earlier because this is an imaginary game. And now you're starting to play the imaginary game. We, we can figure it out. We can yeah. figure this out. Give us enough time. All right, Jack, the question for you is if you could only eat one food for the rest of your shelter in place, one meal, what would it be and why? Well, actually, it's interesting because uh, during this time, I've actually lost about 12 pounds uh, by eating this meal, and I really enjoy it. I take uh, take a head of cabbage. I shred it off really, really uh, finely, and then I then I take some some fresh vine ripened tomatoes and slice it on top. Then I take uh, then I take some some salmon, and I sh- and I flake it on top of the salad, and put Italian dressing on it, and and then I get a a good piece of bread and toast it, put butter on it, and eat with it. And it's so satisfying. I just love it. In fact, it's it's making me hungry right now just thinking about it. <laughs> we're gonna have to we're gonna have to end this podcast and so you can go eat it. If you need to go, man, you'll be able to hear <laughs> hear my dad pray from the other room. Uh, that's an that was an amazing description. You're actually making oh, me hungry too. Oh, All right. And dad, I know you love mom. And, and you're enjoying, you're an introvert. So you're, you're fine in the quarantine. But if you had to be, if you got to be quarantined, you got to add one person from history to, to talk to for the rest of this time, who would that be? Man, I didn't even have some time to think about this. I think it would probably be Francis Schaefer. Um, because for me, um, you know, well, for both of us, um, his book, True Spirituality, was was really a, uh, you know, kind of an epiphanal book for us in our Christian walk. But but it's more because Francis Francis was was kind of an intellectual. He thought and and he was a philosopher and he was a pastor with a pastor's heart. And me having spent my life at university dealing with most people that have a very different worldview than I do and you know his writings on the abolition of man just a lot of his writings were really helpful for me um, early in my career Um, but I just think that he's just somebody that would be great to just sit in big soft chairs and with a fire at night and just talk you know and I think that he would be a person that I would want to sit and shut my mouth and just let him talk you know, because I think he just had so much wisdom about so many things. I would just love that opportunity. Maybe someday I'll have it. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. All right, Dad, do you want to end by by praying for us and, and the people that are watching just that that we would uh, put into practice what, what we've heard? Thanks so much for your guys' wisdom. Really mm-hmm. appreciate it, yeah. Dear Lord. I just thank you for parents and children. Lord, I thank you for your Holy Spirit um, that you made us your own, um, that you didn't leave us as orphans, that you live within us, Lord, and that you provide us what we need uh, to live godly lives. I just pray especially for the mothers and fathers that are watching, Lord, um, that you would teach them what they need to know, that you would provide them um, the wisdom that they need, um, that you would help them to be secure in you to the point that they can live authentic lives before their children, um, that they can love their children well, um, that they can lead their children when their children look at their parents, that they'll be able to see people who, who love you and who love your word. 
and who as imperfectly as they do it, um, that they live lives that are directed toward you um, in everything that they do, not just on Sunday, Lord, um, but throughout the week and the decisions that they make and how they spend their time with their children and how they spend the, the resources that you've given them for their for their families, Lord, that it will that it'll work its way through everything in their lives, Lord, so that their children can come to know you and to love you and to revere you. Lord, I, I just thank you, especially um, as a father. And I know that Jack would say the same thing, that we are able to, to be on a, a podcast like this with our sons who, who've grown up to be men who are influential um, for you, who love you, um, who are desiring to walk after you. So I just want to close by praying for, for Drew and Mark and uh, that, that they can continue to, to push into you and that they can continue to be humble men before you, that they can continue to hear your voice and to, to lead well, that they can be wise, um, but that they can model also um, humility, and that you'll lead them and that you'll bless these ministries to bring you great joy. Amen. Yeah, thanks, Dad. All right. Hey, everybody who's watching, thanks so much for joining us for this conversation. I hope you were as encouraged as I was. And um, I think all of us have the opportunity to soak in God's grace and also to repent during this season. Hope to see you guys next week. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys, for joining me. Thanks, Chris.